pastors here, and if you would grab your Bible and turn to Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. So we, uh, you know, as a family uh, are going through, you know, a transition, my grandmother passed away this week. Um, it, was, it was good, she's in her 90s, she had a great life, um, but as I was preparing this sermon this week, got thinking a little bit about grandma and, and my great-grandma, her mother actually, uh, who was born in 1900, um, and she passed away when I was 16 or so. But thinking about her life, uh, when she was a young adult, my great-grandmother, that is, uh, she was a school teacher, and she rode her horse Tootsie to school uh, to teach. But sometime in there, uh, she traded in Tootsie for a Model T or a Model A, I don't remember which, um, and, and so she got to drive to school. But the way the car worked, there was no fuel injection, so if the gas tank was low, there was a certain hill, she would run out of gas going up the hill, so she had to go in reverse up the hill, right, so that the engine could get the gas, and so she could get to, to, to work. So in her life, though, you know, she, she passed away in the mid-90s, she saw a huge transition from riding a, a horse, right, to school to teach, to airplanes and transportation and vehicles that work really well and all that stuff. And then my grandmother, in her lifetime, right, she saw other huge changes, even in her lifetime, she flight was, was that big transition, right, of, of transportation there, um, or the, the communication age, right? As we move into internet and cell phones and all this stuff, she witnessed all that, which we could call a paradigm shift. You know, what's a, a paradigm shift? It is where things change significantly, a complete transformation of underlying assumptions, beliefs, and patterns of life. Right? And if we think of paradigm shifts, uh, transportation was one of those. It changed how we live. Uh, the internet and communication has changed a lot of things about how we live. As you look through history, there have been significant paradigm shifts, right? When we realize that uh, the earth is not the center of the universe, but the sun is. Uh, the earth is not flat, but it's, it's round. You know, a lot of these things. Well, what about the paradigm shift of coming to know Jesus, Right? When we come to know Jesus as Lord, there should be a, a paradigm shift in our life, a complete change uh, of, of how we see life itself, how we see worship, how we see ourselves, how we see and relate to God. And in the early century, the first century, the Jewish believers had just gone through a significant paradigm shift. So the early Jewish believers, again, in this first century, before Jesus died and rose from the dead, they believed in the one true God, Yahweh, and the way they worshiped was by going to the temple, sacrificing uh, an animal for their sins, you know, all these things, obeying the law, all of that changed when Jesus died and rose from the dead. And, and now the book of Hebrews is addressing these early Jewish believers who are struggling, honestly, with this, this paradigm shift, but we used to do it this way, we're saying, no, there's a, a different way to do it, a new way to do it, uh, how to relate to God and how to live life in general. And we're going to look at a lot of that, a big part of that paradigm shift in Hebrews chapter 7. So grab your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own one, that is our gift to you. But in that Bible, it is page 1,106. 1,106. Uh, the book of Hebrews, as we've noted, is a, a book written to Jewish believers. Um, it is maybe the best New Testament book, well, it is, um, referring to the Old Testament. It's very clear as we read Hebrews that the gospel doesn't start in Matthew. It starts in Genesis, when God created with the word. And so we need the Old Testament. It's very important, right? We see God's plan leading up 
to Jesus. And Hebrews quotes the Old Testament over and over and over, making the assumption that it's actually true. That the creation account in Genesis is true as written. The, the stories throughout the Old Testament are true and helpful. And we're going to look at one of those uh, today. So Hebrews chapter 7, but we're going to start in 619 uh, because in 619 is where this idea begins. Hebrews 619, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So, so far in Hebrews, we've seen some, some deep truths of Jesus being a high priest. And several times he's already referred to, to Jesus as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, Ben taught on the passage where he began this idea, it looks like. I, I'm going to tell you about Melchizedek, but I can't because you won't get it because we have to go back to the basics because uh, you haven't grown up. And so that was kind of a, a harsh, good job, Ben, uh, kind of a reprimand for believers who come to know Christ, but they never really grow up. He's like, I want to talk about something deeper, but you need the basics again. But then after that, he kind of reassures, but you know, but I think you can handle it. And so now he moves into, it looks like this, this argument about Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Uh, if you're new to the church or new to Christianity and you're like, great, here's just one of those weird things over my head. Don't worry. Most of us have never heard of Melchizedek. Um, and we're going to handle that. We're going to look at what it says in the Old Testament. But Melchizedek was a king and a priest. And here we see this reference of who he is, but he's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Uh, the first is in uh, Genesis 14. And so we're not going to read those passages, but you can look that up. Genesis 14. Um, and there we see the story of Abraham, whose name was actually Abram at the time, and his nephew, Lot. So Abraham, again, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, is the father of the Jewish nation. God called Abraham and he said, I, I want you to go to a country that I will show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. He didn't have any kids yet. Uh, later, he would have Isaac. And so uh, the nation of Israel comes through Abraham, then his son Isaac, then his son Jacob, who had 12 sons, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is before any of those are born. Abraham has gone uh, to this, this land that God showed him and told him to go to, and he brought his nephew with him. And Lot comes with them, and, and they both have become wealthy, and they have lots of flocks and these things, and they get to a point, and Abraham says, all right, there's that direction, there's that direction, we're too many, which way do you want to go? And Lot's like, mm, I'll go that way. Abraham's like, I'll go that way. So Lot ends up settling in a city called Gomorrah, and you've probably heard of that, Sodom and Gomorrah, and that will come a little bit later in Genesis. But here, Lot settles there. Um, a battle breaks out between a handful of kings here and a handful of kings here, and in that battle, Lot is taken captive. Now, Abram, Abraham, is not involved in this battle at all, but he hears his nephew's taking. He's like, I'm going to deal with that, right? Uh, the, by the way, the Old Testament, the, the whole Bible, is kind of exciting as you read through it. It's not a boring book at all. So 
Abram gathers his, those born in his household, um, and there's about 300 or so men. He's like, we're going to go get them. So they go, battle, they whoop these kings, take all their stuff, save Lot, and then head back. On their way back, this king comes out to meet them, Melchizedek, a king priest. And here's the unique thing about this. He comes out, and he blesses Abraham. He blesses him, and Abraham... Abram, uh, this is before God changes his name, he takes all the spoils that he won from these kings and he gives a tenth, a tithe, 10%. He gives them to this king. Weird, right? Who is this guy, Melchizedek? It says here, right, no father and mother, no end of days. Some think Melchizedek was an angel. Some would say he was the pre-incarnate Jesus or, or a Christophany. Uh, better, probably not. <laughs> he was probably just a worshiper of the one true God who was a king of what would later become Jerusalem, um, and he was a priest. He worshiped the one true God, but he's a type of Christ. You see this a lot in the Old Testament, a type um, where we don't see his birth, we don't see his genealogy, we d his death isn't written down, he just kind of appears and then disappears, and he's setting the stage for Jesus. So that, that gives you a little bit of an understanding of where we're going to go with this, who this was. He was a king. He, he was a priest. He blesses Abraham. Abraham gives him a tithe. Now, with that in mind, we can move on. Psalm 110.4 is the only other place in the Old Testament where he's mentioned. And it says, and this is a, a psalm predicting, it's looking forward to the coming Messiah. And it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. So bear that in mind. He's even going to quote this in our passage. Look at 7, 4 through 10. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descendant from Abraham, but this man, who does not have his descendant from them, receives tithes from Abraham and is blessed by him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What's the point? <laughs> right? You, you see all this. The whole point is he's referring to, again, the 12 tribes. One of those tribes, which this is later, so Abraham, 500 years later-ish, is when Moses would lead the Israelites out of Egypt, give them the law, and that's when he would set up the priesthood, which would be through one tribe, Levi. Right? So the Levites became the priests of the Israelites. Not any of the other tribes, just the Levites. Well, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. Um, so here, though, we, we see this idea, the, the Levites received the tithes. Again, the Jewish people gave 10% to the, the priests, to the temple for the worship of God. Uh, that's where the idea of tithe comes from. They also gave other offerings. If you add it up, it was closer to probably 30% of their income they gave to, to God uh, and to his work. But here, they're receiving tithes, and the priests are blessing, right? There's a superior, inferior relationship here. Well, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, which means Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and therefore greater than all the Jewish priests. That's the point that he's making here. Now, the priesthood, and we're going to see this coming, the priesthood is now 
done because Jesus is the final high priest. Look at verse 11. Now we're going we're gonna to come back to Jesus. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonging to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descendant from Judah. And in connection with that, the tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So again, right, this carries on this idea. There are 12 tribes. One tribe is the priest, the tribe of Levi. Aaron was the first high priest, Moses' brother. And you go through here, Jesus was not of that tribe. He could not be a priest unless there's a change. And that's the point here. Something has changed. The law is being replaced. It, it, it is being fulfilled in Christ and then replaced. So if you've ever met a Christian who is really kind of wrapped up in the Old Testament law, um, there can be some confusion in that because we're not under that law anymore. Now, here's something important. Under the law, you had uh, religious observances. You also had legal requirements because it was the law of a, a nation, uh, but also there was moral requirements. The moral requirements of the old law are almost 100% repeated in the New Testament. So the morality of the old law was good, in fact, all of the law was good, but some of it does not apply anymore. So if we try and right, put our country or whatever under their law, it doesn't fit that way anymore. They were the only uh, governing, let's say only nation where God was supposed to be king. Every other nation has something else. But the, the moral law continues, but Jesus replaced the rest of the law. The worship under that method is finished. So that's a big deal. Uh, the temple... Right, the temple was in Jerusalem. Jesus died around AD 30, uh, died, rose from the dead. Jewish religion continued, but the temple itself was destroyed in AD 70. And Jesus predicted that it would be. Um, and if we look at the, the history, it was Titus who came in. If you've ever been to Rome, you've seen the Titus Arch. And the Titus Arch was, was created in memory of Titus. And on it, you see people carrying things from the, the temple, right? There's a, a menorah. There's several other things. You're like, ooh, that's, that's the history. Well, AD 70, Rome attacks and destroys the temple. And they burned it so much that all the gold in the temple melted. And it went into the cracks of the stones. And so they tore all the stones. They tore apart to get the gold that had melted between. And this was on purpose, right? The Jewish religion was was finished. The, the need for the temple was done. It was replaced by something better. So what's the point, really, of these? Is that Jesus is greater than all Jewish priests. That's the point he's making here. Jesus is greater than all the Jewish priests. He's not from their line. He's from the line of Melchizedek, who had blessed Abraham, and all the Jewish priests came from that line. But Jesus is greater. That's the point. And so these Jewish believers are tempted to go back to the old way of doing it. And the writer is saying, don't do that, right? These priests are from this 
order of Aaron, and it's replaced. Jesus is better. That, that's it right there. Jesus is better. Now look at verse 18. We're going to finish the passage, and then we're going to see how it applies. 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were presented by death, prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What's the point of these? There's a lot, but here's the first one. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is greater than the Jewish priest, but Melchizedek never brought what Jesus brought, right? Jesus died, rose from the dead. He brought in this new covenant that is a better covenant. So Jesus is greater even than Melchizedek. So here's a question I want to ask before we continue. Is there anything you consider greater than Jesus? I mean, he has beaten this drum in Hebrews, and chapter 7, he has really beaten this drum. Jesus is greater than everything. In your life, what do you consider greater than Jesus? Anything? Where do you go for hope, for encouragement? Is there anything in you? I, I look at how you spend your money. Look at how you spend your time. Is there anything you consider greater than Jesus? Are you tempted by other religions or other belief systems? Right, the idea of the, the cultural thought of the day. Ooh, that sounds better because there's no judgment in it. Right, there's no condemnation of sin, acceptance of everybody just how they are. Right, choose love rather than, than truth. That sounds better. The problem is it's not true. Uh, or, or some of these Eastern religions that have moved into our society. Ooh, those sound good because they're synchronistic. Right, they, they bring syncretistic, one of those words. Right. <laughs> Add all these beliefs together and they can all be true. Believe what you want. That can be true. For, you know, that sounds good, right? That sounds really... The problem is it's, it's not true. Jesus is better than that. Pleasure, right? Maybe pleasure is one of those things you live for. Well, Jesus gives pleasure that's even greater. Reputation, right? We have uh, this idea of image with, with social media and all this stuff. And maybe we're focused on that. How do people view me? Or how do I view myself? Uh, personal identity, all this stuff, we get wrapped up in this. Maybe for us, that's more important than Jesus. Here's the point, though. Jesus is greater than all of that. Here's the cool thing. So uh, every Sunday morning, uh, I pray through my notes and pray over the passage for God to, 
to work on me? Like, is this exactly what you want to say? But here's what he kind of pointed out to me as I was looking through this. Jesus is better because he will take those things that we think are great and change them to align with what is true, and then he'll fulfill that. So when we come to him and say, Jesus, I want you to fulfill this, if that's not what's best, he'll go, no, dummy. <laughs> come to me, abide in me. I'm going to change your heart and your mind to what is right, and then I'll fulfill that. That's what he does. So many times we come to Jesus or people come, like, I'm going to try out the Christian thing. Here's what I want my life to look at. Like, maybe Jesus can help me fulfill what I want to fulfill, right? Or to achieve what I want to achieve. If Jesus can fit in. And so people will try Jesus out and then go, oh, he didn't do what I wanted, right? Or, or it just didn't work for me. Rather, when you really come to salvation, when you really bow the knee and you start to abide, you attend church, right? You get in a group, you read the Bible, you pray. He starts to change you and go, here's what I wanted. I don't, I don't want that anymore. I remember when I was a youth pastor, and, and there was a, a young man who wanted to give his life to Christ, and, and it was at camp. And so it was one of those kind of emotional times, and he was crying. Uh, I said, what, what's going on in your heart right now? He said, I'm scared. I said, why? You're scared? Why are you scared? He said, because I want these things in my life, and if I bow the knee to Jesus, he might change that. I'm like, okay, you're, you're right. <laughs> you're right. The things that you want, God is free to change. Jesus is free to change those things, and take you in a different way. That's what he'll do. So Jesus, again, is better. Now, we're gonna look at four reasons Jesus is better according to these verses. Here's the first one. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. You see that in verse 24. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Why is that better? Right, the, the old priesthood, right, under the Jewish law, there was a, a high priest, and he would have to retire at age 55, um, or they would die. Uh, but they kept being replaced, right? A new priest, a new priest, a new priest. And then that was finally replaced with a new covenant, and so the old law and priesthood was done away with. Not anymore. Here's the point. It's not going to change again. God's method of dealing with people is not going to change. Jesus is it, there's not going to be another prophet who comes along, which there have been in the, even the past few hundred years. Oh, I have a new message from God that I'm going to add to Scripture. Uh-uh. No. no. Right? It's done. The, the book of Hebrews began with, in the past, God spoke in these ways. Now, he speaks in Jesus. Done. This is it. Final. Jesus is the last, final priest. And he is the only way to get to God. He is the last way to have access to God. There is a permanent to Jesus. Right? There's not another God. There's not another way. It is Jesus only. And how did Jesus earn this position? Listen, verse 16. Jesus holds the power of an indestructible life. I love that verse. Verse 16, that's kind of the, it's right at the center of the passage, the center of the whole chapter. Boom, Jesus, the power of an indestructible life. No other religion claims this about a prophet or a God or anything. Jesus God taking on flesh, becoming human, dying on the cross, right? The worst day in history. Three days later, rising from the dead, the greatest day in history, the power of an indestructible life. Jesus rose from the dead in a new body, glorified, God in flesh. No other religion even claims something this great. Jesus has the power of an indestructible life. Here's, here's the point that sticks out to me in that. What do you need? What do you struggle with, right? What is going on in your life? Jesus has an indestructible life. God raised him from the dead. 
What can he not do, right? Why do we try and do things on our own or seek something else to fulfill? If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can do anything. He has the power of an indestructible life. So what is your hope in? Is it in anything other than Jesus? Adjust that. That's his point here. Now here's number two. Why is Jesus greater? Number two, because Jesus can save to the uttermost. That's also in verse 25. Jesus can save to the uttermost. Now, each week I do these notes and I send them off to Katie who puts them on the, or, you know, puts it in the bulletin there and, and Paul puts it on the screen and she called me right after I sent it. She said, uttermost, is that on purpose? <laughs> like, uh, spell check, she's trying to correct that to utmost. I'm like, no, those are two different words. No, uttermost is on purpose. Uh, it is a word, it's in scripture, but it's not one we use. What is uttermost, right? Uttermost means permanent. It means perfect. It means complete. It means through all time. This is huge. Jesus can save to the uttermost, which includes eternal salvation and save here and now. Remember, we've talked about this in the book of Hebrews. We talk about salvation. There's three aspects to salvation, past, present, and future. Past justification. You're saved permanently by Jesus' death and resurrection. Done. It is God looking at you and saying, you are acceptable to me because of Jesus. Saved. Done. But then there's sanctification, the process by which he continues to save us, right? Often from ourselves, right? We, this is the process where we become more and more like Jesus, where he changes our hearts, changes our desires, and then helps us walk in holiness. We get that through, through abiding, walking in the spirit, whatever you want to call it. And then there's the future aspect of salvation, glorification, where we will also get new bodies like Jesus when he returns and be with him on a, a new heaven, new earth forever. It's going to be great. But here, Jesus can save to the uttermost, which means permanent future, but it also means now. This is what's huge, right? We come to Jesus, you know, help me with my stuff. He does want to help us with our stuff, but according to, to his standards, if that makes sense. Sanctification is the process we do participate, but God has given us everything needed to be changed spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Listen to 2 Peter 1.3. It says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Jesus is better, nothing else can save. You know, we live in a, a, a day and age of, of therapy, um, which is not all bad. I was speaking to a, a therapist friend uh, a couple weeks ago um, after we talked about it a little bit in service of, of it's, it's about Jesus, not modern therapy. You know, and she said, you know, modern therapy stuff, there's things that work, right? There's things that help. She said, and those things that work are those that are attached to the, the truth, right? They come from, from God's laying out of all creation. So there's things that work in counseling and in therapy, even if you're not talking about Jesus because they align with truth, but they can't save, right? Again, we go to, to therapy counseling. When I talk to people, they're like, I'm doing therapy. That's good. Is it a Christian therapist? If not, more damage might be done than help. You know, so again, some tools and things can be, can be gained, but Jesus is the only one that saves. Here's the other part of this cultural where we are today. And again, I don't think it's all bad. Uh, this focus on, on trauma um, and, and, you know, things that happen to me so I can work. It's not all bad, but it can be when we become a victim, 
right? I have a diagnosis of something, and this happened to me, so I have trauma, so I'm stuck, meaning this is how I have to be, whatever it is, or I have temptations that are not natural or outside of God, but I'm stuck in that. No, we're not. And modern therapy says that's who you are, that's your identity, and so you're stuck and give to it. Here, Jesus can save to the uttermost, meaning we're not stuck. Even bad things have happened, trauma, absolutely, and we need help to work through those things. Uh, other things, right, with the way that we are, maybe temptation, whatever it is, they're real, and we, we can get help from counseling and those things, but Jesus can bring us through it. A lot of those things, again, we're told you're stuck there. You're going to have to deal with this the rest of your life. Actually, there's hope. <laughs> there's hope that God can work in us and through us and change us, even change some of those temptations or desires, and he can save us. Now, this is, for me, this is huge. In our society, in our, people need to hear this. Jesus can save you from whatever it is right now. Again, he gets to make the definitions. He sets the standards, and then he does fulfill them. To save completely in the present, but also save into eternal future. Now, I did write that, and that's weird, right? To say, I don't know what that meant. Um, it should say Jesus can save, or, or maybe I'm defining uttermost, but that's what it means. <laughs> it means completely to save, completely in the present, but also into the eternal future. Meaning, take it all to Jesus, whatever it is. All right, number three. Jesus gives us intimate access to the Father. We see that in, in chapter 6, 19, and in 7, 25. Jesus gives us intimate access to the Father. This was a paradigm shift. Uh, we have a picture I want to show you. Pop that picture up here of the, the, the Jewish religion, and this is the temple. So again, God gave this. This was good. God gave this to the Jewish people to build the temple, and here's what it was. Uh, right here is the Holy of Holies. That's a spot where the high priest could go in once a year, the direct access, right, direct presence of God. They would go in there once a year. Right outside that, you have the court of priests. Only priests could go in there. Jewish men and women could not unless they were a priest from the order of Levi, right? Only there. Here, the court of men, only men. A Jewish woman could not come to this area, right? There was a boundary, only the men. And then here, women could come into this area, men and women, Israelites, the court of Israel, but Gentiles could not. So if you or me, most of us here are not Jewish, but if we came to know the one true God, we were not allowed in there. We could come, we could not even come into this area, another boundary. That's the court of the Gentiles. We could go there, but we couldn't go in there. What's the point of all this? There were boundaries, right? There were things set up between people and God, and it was good. It was, right, God is great. Uh, awe, glory, fear, all those things are great. But what happened when Jesus died was he broke down all of those. There, you see the picture right there. There's the veil, the curtain, right? That separated everything else from the holy of holies. When Jesus died, and we talked about this last week, when he died, earthquake, darkness, and that veil was torn in half, which was impossible. It was six inches thick, meaning we have direct access to God. Jesus provides direct access access to the Father. That's a big deal, and that's a paradigm shift. You do not, uh, this building here, this is not God's temple. This is not God's house. You know who God's house is? Believers. But you are God's house. We are God's house as believers. Uh, you don't need a pastor, right? You don't need to go to a priest. Any of those things, there's nothing between you and God. You can go to him. That is a paradigm shift. And here's what that means. We have the freedom to draw near to God. We have the freedom to draw near to God. 
He saves to the uttermost. Look at verse 25. We can leave that one on the screen for a minute. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Who does he save to the uttermost? Those who draw near to God. We have the freedom to draw near. Meaning all these things that, that are going on in your life, these issues, whatever, that you want God to fix, how can he save? As we draw near to him. That's the only way. Again, we come to know Christ, and then we want to live life our own way. He's not going to save us currently, right, sanctify from whatever this is, because we're not drawing near to him. We must draw near to him to experience those benefits, and we have that freedom because Jesus died and rose from the dead. You know, James, Jesus' half-brother, wrote this. He said, you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your pleasures. Our God is a good God. We have direct access to him. He is a good father. I read a book, uh, and I've shared this before, uh, when I was a young father, that said, say yes to your kids every single time, unless there's a really good reason to say no. I thought that was, that for me, that was helpful. Say yes to my kids because it makes me test. Why am I going to say no? Because I'm lazy or selfish, or right? Whatever. A lot of times, parents, we can admit, we say no because we just don't want to put the effort in. Um, Jesus isn't that way, or the Father is not that way. He is a good Father. He'll say yes every single time, unless there's a good reason to say no. And he knows better than you, and he knows better than me what we need. And so he knows what we need even before we ask, and he wants to give us those things that are for our good. And that leads to the last point, four, why is Jesus better? Because Jesus is interceding for us, also verse 25. Jesus is interceding for us, meaning he is at the right hand of the Father, and he knows what's best for you and what's best for me, and he's speaking to the Father on our behalf. They need this, or we sin. And he's like, hey, Father, I covered that. That person is mine. Romans 8.34 talks about this principle this way. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding in contrast with condemning. Who is there to condemn? The devil wants to condemn you. Sometimes your own flesh wants to condemn you. Others will look at you and want to condemn you. Guess what? Jesus is interceding. Meaning, if you are in him, there is nothing that can condemn you. Nothing. Not your, your past sin. Not your present struggles. Not another person. Whatever it is, you are safe and secure because Jesus died, rose from the dead, and continues to intercede for us. You know, in 1 John 21, it says, or in, in 1 John 2, sorry, 1, it says, do not sin any longer. But if any of us does sin, <laughs> we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus, again, telling the Father, I covered that sin. They are right with me. They have direct access to you because of what I have done. And here's what I want to ask. When we come to the Father with our prayers, right, we draw near, do we have the faith to say, your will be done? When we ask for these things, we want to be saved right in this life, relationally, financially, go down the list, whatever it is. Do we have the faith to say, your will be done? Or have we already defined, these are the things that we want it to look like. God, fill it my way. Or will we let him change us? You know, as I was, again, preparing this this week, uh, praying over what God wanted to say, the message in this, this chapter is really, really clear. Jesus is better. Right? The whole book, Jesus is greater. 
Jesus is more, Jesus is better. Those words are repeated over and over in the book of Hebrews. So I wanna ask you, is Jesus more? Is he better than everything else? Is he greater in your heart? You know, this, uh, this applies to all of us. You know, as believers, a lot of times we put other things between us and God. And if you're a believer and that's you, you know, during this time we're gonna to continue to worship. I want you to give those to God. But on my heart this morning was the person maybe that might come that has not yet bowed the knee. And if that's you, God is speaking to you today. I am better. Jesus says, I am the only way. If you have never surrendered to Jesus as Lord, that's where it begins. And so as I wrap this up, I, I want to pray for us. And if you would, bow your head like, like we were kids. <laughs> bow your head, close your eyes, and, and I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, you are better. Um, and we don't have the freedom to choose something else and, and that be right, but we do have the freedom to choose something else. We have the freedom to follow something else as better or, or greater. And all of that would be a lie. All of that is false. Holy Spirit, I, I ask you right now, do what only you can do. God, we in this room, we all have struggles. Uh, none of us are, are even close to perfect. God, I pray for the believers in this room that if there's anything they have placed before you, that you would show that to them and help them take their next steps to surrender those, to, to, to put you in the number one spot. And that's where we experience this abundant life we talk about often, of peace, of joy, of hope, of purpose. God, I pray right now, if anyone is in this room and they have never bowed the knee to you, if they recognize that Jesus, you are Lord, you died on the cross for our sins and you rose from the dead, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would bow the knee for the first time, they would bow their heart to you and say, I am no longer God of my own life, but you are. Now, with your heads down and your, your eyes closed, if that's you, pray after me. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead. I know that my sin is real and has separated me from the Father. I accept your forgiveness and I surrender my life to you. Please save me now, eternally, and today. And Jesus, I want to follow you now the rest of my life. Now keep your heads down and your eyes closed. We don't do this often here, but if you prayed that prayer, I want you to just look up. If you've given your life to Jesus for the first time today, I want to see you. I see you. I see you. Anyone else? If today is your day of salvation, I want to know. Father, I thank you that you saved to the uttermost. And right now in this room, you've saved a couple. <laughs> That's awesome. That's new life. God, we are celebrating Christmas where Jesus, you came as a baby. You took on flesh. You lived a real human life. You suffered and then died for us. That is amazing. And you rose from the dead victorious. Our hope is in you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we worship, I'm gonna be in the back. If, if you wanna... Pray with me for any reason. Come talk to me. Uh, if today was your day of salvation, we want to know it. Grab your Connect card. Uh, fill that out, please. Mark that on there and put it in the box. Uh, and We want to contact you. If you have given your life to Jesus and you've never made that public through baptism, let us know. Fill that out on your card. We are doing baptism really soon, right? Next, next week. 
next week. You can get in on that, right? Yeah. <laughs> next week, we're going to have baptism. That, when, when people are, you know, gave their life to Jesus for the first time in, in Acts, they asked, what do we do? He said, he said, repent and be baptized. The first step after salvation is baptism. If you've never been baptized, again, fill out that Connect card. Uh, we want to know and we want to baptize you. Let's worship. Like a soldier with no armor In the middle of the battle I was broken I was broken 